Alrighty, everyone, welcome to a new semester of law school, and ultimately, I, I guess this would be a second season of law schoolers. I don't know if I'll end up doing that, but let's just say that this is our first episode of the new semester. This semester, we're going to be covering lots of materials, starting with property in this episode. Uh, we also had constitutional law today, and uh, we had legal writing. Those were the three classes, and so there's going to be an episode on each of those today, as well as an episode on how to outline, because I honestly think that you should start outlining sooner than later. Um, anyways, I'll get more into that later. Let's go ahead and hop into property law. Property law is something that is so interesting because... Ultimately, everything that we see around us is property. This microphone that I'm talking into is property. Same with the cord and the outlet that it is, the computer that this is being recorded onto, and the mint sitting on my desk. All those things are property. Homes are property. Everything that we can think of is a lot of property. And as a result, property really is this big, large name for a whole bunch of categories of different kinds of law. So things are going to be a bit different for this semester because you can think of it as an umbrella where the umbrella is labeled property and underneath all that umbrella are different people. Think of it a really big umbrella. And that first person is going to be a state and the second person is going uh, to be intellectual property, so on and so forth. Ultimately, there's a whole lot of different categories of property that we can recognize and so there's not going to be the set string of rules where we go from filing a complaint into answering it into removing etc etc in a very structural way instead we're just going to cover category by category to get all this material down but we still need to understand why we recognize part property how it works an overview and go over a couple of the theories of property before we actually get started on what property is so property is created by the law. Without the law, there is no property. If you call from the Declaration of Independence, it talks about those things that are rights that people have, goals that people want, as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and all that kind of stuff. But one of the things that it does not list as one of those rights that people have is property. And the reason for that is because property is not a human right, and as a result, property is something that is seen more as valued once you obtain it. But how is property given? Well, there are five theories for how this works. Uh, each theory, I'll just list them out real quick, then we'll go over them more in depth. There's the first possession theory, the labor theory, the utilitarian theory, the civic republican theory, and the personhood theory. Let's start with these one by one. The first possession theory, quite simply, the definition is first come, first serve. First person to obtain the property is the person who gets the property. So, for example, think of it at when you're a child as a Christmas, you're opening a present that your parents have given you, and it's a brand new toy, something really special. You wanted it for a really long time. Your brother wants it too, and so he's making a claim on the toy. Well, whose toy is it? Well, it's your toy. It was given to you. You took first possession of it. It's your toy, not your brother's. That's how first possession theory works. Then we have labor theory. So labor theory comes from Locke. It's a lot of philosophy. 
But ultimately, what it says is you obtain property, or rather you claim ownership on property when you put labor into it. Because when you're putting labor into it, you're adding value to that property. And because you're adding value to it, it becomes something that you can just claim. A good example of labor theory, for example, are farmers. A person who uh, goes, tills the ground, puts in seed, raises crops, putting in all this extra labor into the property to add value to the property, that person then takes ownership of that property. Then there's the utilitarian theory. The way this works is that you are provided property because you want to maximize the happiness of the community. And the way that works is other people are restricted from using that property because you want to get the most value, or rather you want to make the property as efficient as possible. A good way to think about this as well, just going back to the farmer, is the farmer can then go and sell the crops of the property to the general public community and the community gets a value out of the property from the work of the farmer. Now, if the farmer wasn't guaranteed this land was their property, well, then there would be no incentive to cultivate this land because after it was grown, some passerby could just come and grab the property, the harvest, whatever it might be, and there would be no repercussions. So the utilitarian theory incentivizes restrictive ownership so that people can actually make the most value of the property. And you can use this theory for pretty much anything. Then there's the civic republican theory. And this is back in the day when the founders were around. A lot of the time, property was seen as a lot more valuable. Because uh, not everybody had property. And if you had property it was to be given a lot larger stake. That's why when the Constitution was first initially done, the people who could vote were only property holders. And a big part of this was to make it so that property was an individual thing instead of a government thing. That way people would want to influence the government because they had property ownership instead of coming to the government for all of their needs. And the final theory is personhood theory. What this is, is you develop an attachment to a piece of property. And this attachment becomes so much so that it becomes a part of your identity. And because it's a part of your identity, you have a claim on this property. A good example of this would be like a family heirloom, where... It's something that's passed through generations, and as a result, you feel a strong connection to that heirloom where you will want to protect that heirloom as your own property. We see all these theories work into play in Pearson versus Post. This is the very first case, maybe not very first case. It is a case of first impression, which means that it was the first time this issue was heard. But it's about two hunters, or at least one for sure hunter, uh, he had his dogs, and he was chasing after a fox. His name was Post. Uh, Post was chasing after a fox. He cornered it, and then Pearson came by and saw Post chasing after the fox and decided to kill the fox and take it for his own. 
Well, who is the owner of the fox at this point? And that's really what this case was all about. Is Post the owner because he was chasing it, even though he didn't make it there before Pearson did? Or is Pearson the owner because he actually was the first person to kill and catch the fox? Well, we can see how each theory works into this. The majority ended up going and voting for Pearson. Uh, Pearson is the rightful owner of the fox because he was the first to capture it. And we can see the spectrum of where you may want to draw the line, where it's, do you see the fox? Is that enough to possess it? Do you chase the fox? Is that enough to possess it? Do you capture the fox? Is that enough to possess it, like trap it? Or do you have to kill the fox to possess it? The majority says capture at the very least is where first possession comes into play. Mere pursuit is not enough. The dissent disagrees and says that labor should have been a big part of it. And the reason for this is because Post, he had taken his dogs, he had done all the work and chased it, and then Pearson just came up and done it. And because of the labor, the dissent thinks that Post should have possession of this fox. There are arguments, obviously, on both sides for the utilitarian. You want to eradicate the fox, or you want to encourage others to continue to hunt. There's civic Republican engagement here where you want to encourage the debate. And then there's personhood, who defines hunting as more in their nature. Ultimately, a lot of cases are based off of this, but it's just a good way of seeing how each of these theories are intertwined to function together as an overview of property. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Law Schoolers. Before I let you go, there are four things I want to say. The first thing is if you enjoyed these episodes and if you enjoyed the website, I would invite you to go and join Law Schoolers Pro. And you can do that by going to lawschoolers.com join. It's a way for you to support us, but there's also a lot of features there that I think you will enjoy. Second thing is that nearly all of our episodes are unedited. The only ones that aren't are pre-law materials. And the reason for that is so you can actually see the legal material in its raw form as I'm learning it as well. The third thing is that the information contained in these episodes are specifically only for educational purposes. They're not to be used as legal advice. And with that, the fourth thing is if it is used as legal advice, we are not liable. That is, law schoolers is not liable for any legal outcomes. Thank you again for enjoying the show. Have a good one.